From NPR, this is Justice Talking. I'm Margot Adler. The majority of Americans oppose the war in Iraq, and some soldiers are voicing their frustration with the ongoing conflict, organizing demonstrations, signing petitions. But does someone who dons a uniform also have a right to express his or her opinion? A popular blogger says the mainstream media could learn a thing or two from soldiers who are blogging about their experiences from the front lines. I really believe that the best press coming out of this war has been from blogs, and of course they don't get that much attention. But military regulations may change what type of information a soldier can post online. First Amendment rights and the military, from blog posts to protests, after the news. This is Justice Talking from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center. I'm Margot Adler. Today's show on the First Amendment and the military was taped last August. We love this show so much we thought we'd bring it to you again. When a soldier enlists in the service, he or she agrees to adhere to military code. It dictates everything from how to address a superior to how to clean a weapon. But what about free speech? As the war in Iraq continues, some soldiers have gone public with their thoughts on the war. In August 2007, a handful of infantrymen penned an op-ed in the New York Times calling Iraq a lawless environment. And in an age when soldiers enter the war zone armed with laptops and digital cameras, new questions are raised about when and if your average GI should be able to log on and instantly upload his or her perspective from the front lines. Later in the show, we'll talk about changes to the military's blogging policy. But first, we go to Boston, where one soldier is pushing the boundaries of free speech through more traditional means, anti-war protests. Monica Brady-Myroff has this story. When Liam Madden graduated from high school in Vermont in 2002, he admits he wasn't mature enough to succeed in college, so he went straight into the military. The Marine Corps offered me the opportunity to see a lot of the world that you wouldn't get to see otherwise, um, to challenge myself and to grow up. And I did. He grew up in ways he didn't expect. A year after Madden joined the service, the country went to war in Iraq. And after serving in Iraq for six months, he became a vocal opponent to the war. Today, he leads the newly formed Boston chapter of Iraq Veterans Against the War. Over the summer, he rode on a bus tour of military bases from New York to Georgia to recruit members and promote an end to the war. Recently, he was part of a platform of speakers at an anti-war protest in Kinneybunkport, Maine. The word that comes to mind as I look out in front of me to a sea of New England's most concerned and compassionate citizens is conscience. Madden stands before several hundred people wearing his Marine Corps combat camouflage shirt. It's a defiant act because earlier this year, Madden and another Iraq war veteran were facing administrative action for protesting in uniform and allegedly making disloyal statements at a rally. The Marines dropped the charges in June, but instructed Madden not to protest in his uniform because he is still part of the individual ready reserves, which is made up of former active duty soldiers and reservists. Madden says he'll continue to speak his mind. Our solution as Iraq veterans against the war is to understand 
that this war will end not through an act of Congress, but through an organized and collective act of conscience. Christopher Ott with the American Civil Liberties Union says the charges against Madden and others show the military is trying to dampen dissent. It just seems to me that um, you know what what the what the military is really trying to do is to silence someone who you know who is a veteran who has firsthand knowledge about what he's talking about and disagrees with what the the military's position officially is. And and again, it's it's not that there's some that people are going to confuse what he's saying with the military's official position. They just don't want he's what he's saying to be heard, and that's that's troubling. Madden is also hoping to bring his message to Congress. In 2005, while still on active duty, he helped start the Appeal for Redress, an online petition calling for the withdrawal of troops from Iraq. It's a permissible way for soldiers to voice their opinion about the war to members of Congress. But Madden goes even further, calling the war illegal. The war in Iraq is, by Nuremberg standards, an international and domestic law, a war crime and a war of aggression. The free speech of veterans is an old issue, says Ott of the ACLU. He holds a weathered copy of a 1977 ACLU manual called The Rights of Military Personnel. The manual says there are guidelines about what soldiers can do in uniform, such as march in a parade, but not make commercial endorsements. If there were a clear policy that said, you just can't wear your uniform where, when you're not on duty, then that would be one thing. But since that is allowed, then you know our position is essentially that um, the the default should always be in the in the direction of, of free speech. But not all veterans think they and their fellow soldiers should be allowed to speak their mind while in uniform. Dan Fricky is a major in the Army Reserves who also served in Iraq. That's totally uh, unprofessional. Number one, there's policies and directives that dictate when you can wear your uniform. Secondly, it's like a policeman going to a union uh, uh, demonstration and picketing. Madden says he doesn't want to offend his fellow soldiers, but he has to speak his conscience. He hasn't heard from the Marine Corps since wearing his fatigues at that protest in Kinnebunkport. How do we support the troops? Bring us home now! Madden hopes that when Americans see soldiers protesting, it will help bring an end to the war. For Justice Talking, I'm Monica Brady-Meyerov. Liam Madden has gotten a lot of publicity for his campaign against the war, and his actions have brought to the forefront the question, what free speech rights do soldiers have, and what rights do they give up? My next guest says that soldiers actually retain several First Amendment rights when they join the service. Eugene Fidel is the president of the National Institute for Military Justice, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving understanding of the military justice system. I asked him to give me a sense of what soldiers can and can't do when it comes to freedom of expression. There's a lot of things they can do. For example, the New York Times not long ago ran an op-ed signed by seven active duty uh, enlisted men about the war in Iraq. That sounds pretty public, and uh, so far as I know, no adverse action uh, has been taken against them. An interesting issue uh, some years ago was... Uh, had to do with bumper stickers. This was during the uh, Nixon administration, and uh, the question presented at a base in the South was, can you have a bumper sticker that says, impeach Nixon? And the legal office that was concerned with that uh, decided that there was no problem with such a bumper sticker. Uh, obviously, GIs have the right to vote. A GI can uh, make a political contribution. 
So th there's plenty of things that uh, GIs can do. And are there other things that they can't do? Yes. Um, there are limits in terms of involvement with hate groups, extremist groups. What, what would happen if, for example, somebody put a uh, poster of uh, the uh, leader of the Third Reich on the wall in a barracks? I'm sure that would be – a way would be found to get rid of the, uh, the poster. Obviously, you know, white power groups, for example, have been problematic in the past. There are other issues, by the way, that relate to religious expression, which, of course, is also a function of the First Amendment to the Constitution. And that's a very, very rich area right now. So, in other words, things about wearing crosses or stuff like that or, or Jewish stars? Well, wearing, or... wearing religious insignia of whatever kind uh, is, not, is not the issue. I think the issue uh, currently uh, has to do with proselytization. And, uh, you know, this has been a, uh, a concern, particularly at the Air Force Academy, but elsewhere as well, um, because the military, of course, is not, you know, simply another workplace or, uh, you know, the corner of uh, Connecticut and Kay and Washington, where if you, somebody hassles you on the street or tries to proselytize you, uh, you can simply say, get lost. I'm not interested. Let's talk specifically about uniforms. This seems to be a particularly touchy area. It's a rich area. But ultimately, I think people pretty much know what the rules are. Uh, a person in the military really shouldn't be uh, wearing the uniform during demonstrations. And we know roughly what a demonstration is. Uh, and the reason for that is it can suggest that the military itself is behind the demonstration or supportive of the demonstration. Uh, that's a relatively easy case. Unfortunately, that doesn't entirely cover the field. What if you have somebody who uh, wears a uniform shirt, you know, and civilian trousers? <laughs> or camouflage uh, or, pants without any insignia, right? camouflage pants, right? Which, which you or I could buy at the local Army-Navy store. I mean, you could, law professors have a lot of fun with this subject. You can imagine all the hypotheticals. But ba the hard core of the question is, should a person in the military be wearing a uniform at a political or other demonstration? And the answer is no. Uh, not long ago, there was an issue relating to a lieutenant general who uh, was very invested in uh, religious matters and uh, gave what uh, certainly seemed to be a tendentious political talk in uniform at a church, I believe, in Florida. And uh, that caused quite a stir, and I think appropriately so. People do have to exercise a little self-control. I have a memory of John Kerry throwing away those medals or ribbons uh, and being in uniform, and yet I don't think he was prosecuted under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, was he? I, I recall the um, the medals incident, uh, and there was some question whether they were actually his or whether they were copies, but I don't believe he was in uniform when he threw the medals over a fence or something like that. Uh, I, I don't think that was a uniforms issue. Now, of course, there were a lot of other issues. Who among us has not seen uh, television shows or uh, movies where people are in uniform? But of course, drama is itself a form of First Amendment expression. And uh, conceivably, there might be uh, problems if you had a GI in uniform in a movie. And all of these rules about, uh, you know, what you do about protests, what you can write, is this all in the Uniform Code of Military Justice? No, uh, very little of it is in the Uniform Code of Military Justice as such. Um, 
it's more in the uh, implementing regulations. The military is very, very dedicated to regulations. Uh, there are Department of Defense regulations. Each of the armed services has regulations on such things as uh, extremist organizations, for example, or political activities. And and you cannot answer all questions. I'm commonly asked, well, can you do this? Can you do that? Give me a list. And the answer is there is no list uh, because of the variety of uh, forms of political expression, political and other expression in our society, uh, and also the changing uh, environment that we live in. Um, you know, the, once upon a time, it was one thing to uh, talk in the trenches, let's say, or to hand out leaflets uh, or to write an op-ed. Uh, now everything is uh, uh, interconnected through the Internet, uh, through digital uh, photography, uh, through things like blogs, that, that kind of communication. So it's a much richer environment than it once was. Eugene Fidel is a lawyer and the president of the National Institute of Military Justice. Thank you for talking with me today. It's my privilege. Coming up on Justice Talking, is it a danger to democracy when soldiers get involved in politics? And later in the show, the military is using YouTube to tell its story from the front lines. Stay with us. This is Justice Talking, the public radio show about law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. Today's show about freedom of speech and the military was recorded in August of last year. In January 2007, Liam Madam, a soldier home from the war in Iraq, brought a petition to Washington. It was signed by more than a thousand soldiers, calling for an end to the war. Since then, 1,000 more soldiers have added their names to the list. The impact of this petition, called the Appeal to Redress, remains to be seen. But the event caught the attention of Boston University professor Andrew Basevich, who published an op-ed in the Atlantic Monthly warning against the dangers of a military that becomes too politically active. Andrew Basevich joins me now. He's a professor of international relations and history at Boston University. I'm also joined by Eric Seitz, a lawyer who has represented service members in several hundred courts-martial. Both of my guests are critical of the current war, but they hold very different views about soldiers voicing their opinions on the war or on politics in general. Welcome both of you to Justice Talking. Thank you. Thank you. While the rights of expression are limited in certain ways for soldiers, those in the armed forces retain some freedom in this regard. Andrew, in your article in the Atlantic Monthly, you warned against soldiers exercising these First Amendment rights and becoming too politicized. Why? First of all, I'm not an opponent of uh, the First Amendment and I'm a supporter of, of free speech. But I think that in this situation, we have two very important principles that are colliding. On the one hand, the principle of free speech. On the other hand, really a basket of principles that are necessary to maintain good order and discipline in the military, are necessary to ensure that we have an effective military, and are necessary to ensure that the military is clearly subordinate to duly constituted constitutional uh, authority. 
In other words, I want a, I want a military that follows orders and stays out of politics. Eric, how would you respond to this? In, in some fundamental way, are the ideas of the military and free speech at odds with one another? Well, I think they can be, and I think they are today because of what's going on in the real world. I don't disagree in principle with anything that Professor Basevich has said in his article. In an ideal democracy, you certainly want the military to be subservient and not to threaten civilian control of a political system. But in this period of time, just as in the period of time in Vietnam, and I can cite other historical examples as well, it's critical for the military people to uphold the oaths which they've taken to support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States. And when you have an administration such as we have, which is using the control of the military to its own ends, many of which I believe constitute violations of treaties and commission of war crimes, I think it's incumbent upon military leadership, as we've seen, and upon the troops themselves to take a position to in, a, in principle, defend what they believe they should be ordered and required to do. I'm wondering if you make a distinction, Andrew, between officers and enlisted men, since Article 88 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice only applies to officers, and an enlisted soldier is really a temporary position. It's not a career like an officer. So shouldn't the ordinary grunt have more First Amendment rights than an officer? Uh, no, I don't think so. And I, I, th I think I probably would question the notion that uh, the enlisted soldier is a sort of a temporary employee who's just passing through. That, that was the case, uh, let's say, in the World War II uh, Army when our enlisted soldiers, the identity of the enlisted soldier was very much that of a citizen soldier uh, who was wearing a uniform only temporary. But the identity of the military today actually is quite different than it was back in the 1940s. We, we have this so-called all-volunteer force, which really is a professional army. And most of the enlisted soldiers who are recruited, I wouldn't say most of them are necessarily going to stay for 20 or 25 years, but they are perceived as professionals. They are perceived as people who, who may well uh, stay. So I would sort of hesitate to endorse that sort of distinction. Eric, uh, do you see a distinction between officers and enlisted men in regard to these rights? No, I don't. And I also question the presumption that this is a volunteer army because uh, the way, in fact, people are recruited, the economic disparities that lead to uh, recruitment of people from low-income areas, I'm particularly thinking about American Samoa now, which is near us, which has the highest percentage of people in the army, uh, given their population, and correspondingly the highest number of deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are still great disparities that cause people to go into the military for circumstances that are other than voluntary, and therefore I think that uh, it is incorrect to assume that when people go into the military that they know or understand or agree that they're giving up any significant rights for the rest of their lives or for significant periods of their lives. That was Eric Seitz, a lawyer who has represented several hundred service members in court proceedings. Also with me is Andrew Basevich, a professor of international relations and history at Boston University. I'm Margo Adler. This is Justice Talking, and we're looking at free speech and the military. Andrew, you've been very critical of the appeal for redress from the war in Iraq. That's a petition that's written and signed by a group of military personnel and vets uh, asking Congress to end the war. 
But sending petitions to Congress is one of the First Amendment rights specifically protected for soldiers. I actually agree with the sentiments expressed by the people who, the soldiers, who organized the appeal for redress. My concern, though, perhaps is more clearly uh, shown in the response elicited by the appeal for redress, which was another appeal. It's called the Appeal for Courage, organized by a, I believe, a, a naval young naval officer serving in Baghdad, uh, which in which has its own website, uh, which has a a quote unquote petition, to which I think around four thousand serving uh, soldiers have signed. And this this appeal for courage calls on Congress to quote uh, halt any calls for retreat, and it urges Congress to quote actively oppose media efforts which embolden my enemy while demoralizing American support at home, unquote. Well, I don't think it is the business of serving soldiers to tell the Congress that the Congress needs to shut down protest or to limit the activities of the press. And that's the sort of thing that I, I fear happens when we invite soldiers to become actively involved in political uh, controversies. They need to stay out of that. Uh, We, the citizens who are not serving members, are the people who should be leaning on the Congress or protesting in the streets or signing petitions or doing whatever we can, but we ought to keep soldiers out of that business. Eric, uh, pushing more on this issue of Andrew's fear of a soldier's lobby, it's one thing to have a single soldier speak out, say, I don't agree with this war, but isn't it dangerous to have the military begin to feel that it can weigh in and influence the president on issues of national security or, uh, you know, or, or go to Congress? A civilian control of the military seems very important, doesn't it, Eric? Oh, I, absolutely. I, I would not waffle on that principle uh, as being something that's a key ingredient of a democracy. However, as a practical matter in our system, the military does weigh in. The generals and the joint chiefs of staff and, and high-ranking military people are very active in the formulation of policies in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. There's no question about that. And you can't simply draw a line in saying they're just giving professional advice. They are advocating for policies and they're doing it on a regular basis. And for years, we've objected to the fact that people who support a particular military policy are allowed to speak to the media to advocate for that policy and wear their uniforms and do so, whereas there is a distinct distinction drawn that people who oppose or criticize policies cannot do that. We don't think that's appropriate because there is clearly advocacy that goes on by people in uniform. However, having said that, uh, and, and understanding that there should be a principle of civilian control over the military in any democracy, what happens when the democracy is not functioning? What happens as in Vietnam where there was an overwhelming uh, objection to the continuation of that policy and our presidents and our political uh, leadership basically ignored it for how many years? May I comment? Yes, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think this gets to the heart of the difference between uh, Eric and myself. I mean, uh, in, in many respects, I endorse his critique of American democracy. Uh, and uh, it sort of grieves me uh, that uh, although procedurally we seem to be a democratic system, substantively something is, is badly out of whack. But I have to say that as I listen to his argument, uh, it strikes me as an argument in favor of praetorianism, 
The system is broken. The political system is broken. So let us turn to soldiers and let us summon the soldiers from the barracks and they will fix what is broken in our political system. Now, I think that is a very dangerous notion. If the system is broken, and indeed it is, then then the the obligation to fix it rests on the mass of the citizens uh, who have not taken an oath uh, to obey the orders of the officers appointed over me. Uh, it's the rest of us who are called upon to fix things and to uh, to say that we need to have the soldiers fix what's broken strikes me as just uh, a real invitation to uh, a constitutional mess. Eric, I'm wondering what you think should happen if a soldier's speech is discriminatory or prejudicial. A lot of generals spoke out against President Clinton when he wanted to allow homosexuals to openly serve in the military. The same was true for President Truman when he desegregated the armed forces. What do you think should take place then? Well, in fact, there was a decision recently of the Army Court of Appeals, which is a uh, military court that reviews court-martial decisions in which a soldier in, uh, I believe, South Carolina was convicted of offenses relating to his sending out emails to fellow soldiers and others of a racist nature, white supremacist nature. And basically what he was charged and convicted of in that case had to do with creating uh, problems inside the military, undermining military discipline because he was perpetrating basically racist uh, ideology which would affect the ability of the military and of people in the military to be able to carry on their, their jobs. That Those kinds of limitations, speech which is decidedly dangerous, uh, I think has, can always be prosecuted just as for example, uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater, as the old saying goes, can be prosecuted because it's directly related and imminently related to a harm that we are entitled to prevent from occurring. So under classic First Amendment law, I think that kind of speech and those kinds of ideas can be regulated when they are uh, put out there on the table in a way to incite people to engage in actions that we have a right to prevent. Um, but what we're talking about here is basically political ideas. And while it's true that political ideas may lead to certain kinds of consequences, when you talk about Vietnam and you talk about Iraq and if you want to go all the way back, for example, and talk about the role that the Russian uh, army played uh, in World War I when they finally uh, decided they weren't going to fight anymore, which obviously gave aid and comfort to the revolutionaries and allowed them to overthrow the czarist regime. I mean, you have those kinds of historical examples and, and, and Andrew is correct. I mean, basically putting soldiers or putting military into the field politically is a very dangerous concept that in theory – I would love never to see happen. I may be misinterpreting what Eric is saying, but it sounds to me like what he's saying is that uh, when a, a circumstance exists, the Bush administration, the Iraq war, that I find offensive, then I want to have soldiers uh, maximum latitude to engage in political speech. But where the circumstance that exists is not one that I find offensive, then I can make arguments to regulate the speech of soldiers. And, well, I, I don't understand how one could sort of uh, turn on and off the rules of allowing soldiers to speak in that way. Either they're going to have 
a wide latitude to engage in political debate, to become politicized, to be political actors. But Andrew, or they're not. Andrew, isn't it true that that turning on and off happens all the time? For example, if we go back to the Clinton example, um, there wasn't a lot of fallout for the officers who criticized Clinton. But today, oh, let, let me emphasize that was that was unprofessional, reprehensible did severe, I'm talking about the generals opposing the uh, gays in the military initiative, uh, did severe damage to American civil-military relations. I am not for a second trying to argue that we should keep enlisted soldiers out of politics so that the generals can play politics. The, the senior officer ranks are politicized. That's a problem. Uh, the solution to the problem is not to invite enlisted soldiers also into the political arena, the, the, the solution to the problem is try to restore a, an, an ethic of military professionalism to which officers once adhered, which, which said that part of being a professional officer was to stay outside of politics. The ethic of, of let's say, George Marshall, that has been tremendously eroded over the years. So, so uh, Eric wants more soldier participation in politics I want less, in particular, I want less on the part of general officers. I'd like to ask you if either of you have any final thoughts. Uh, start with you, Andrew. I, I just want to emphasize, I, I hope I don't come across as somebody who doesn't believe in the First Amendment. I, I do, in free speech. Uh, I'm disappointed, as I think Eric is, that uh, somehow uh, the mass of our citizens uh, are not exercising that right uh, in, in meaningful ways. My only concern is I don't want to see a politicized military. Eric? Well, I don't want to see a politicized military either, but I would prefer not to have a situation where the military is being misused to create the kind of havoc that they are now creating in Iraq and in other parts of the Middle East. And with that prospect, I think it therefore is incumbent upon us to utilize every way in which we can to combat those policies. And unfortunately, in some respects, it may be that we need to rely upon people in the military and their expressions to be able to effectively tell us what's actually occurring. Eric Seitz is a lawyer who has represented service members in several hundred court-martials in administrative and appellate proceedings. Andrew Basevich is a professor of international relations and history at Boston University. Thank you both for coming on our show. Thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up on Justice Talking, we look at the impact new military regulations may have on soldiers' blogs. Yeah, and you know, a lot of these blogs are diaries, and um, I wouldn't want to go to my commander and say, you know, hey, sir, um, I want to tell my mom about a particularly hot day I had last week. Uh, can I do that? And in a time before laptops, blogs, and YouTube, Soldiers in the Vietnam War found other means to spread their opinion. A so-called underground GI press, which consists largely of anti-war newspapers. Military Stay with authorities us. are clamping down hard on the papers. Justice Talking is produced by the Annenberg Public Policy Center, a think tank at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The program is made possible with support from the Annenberg Foundation. The foundation works to advance public well-being through improved communication.
Additional support comes from NPR member stations and West Legal Ed Center, where lawyers can listen to Justice Talking for MCLE credit online at westlegaledcenter.com. And from Oxford University Press, publisher of the United States Constitution, What It Says, What It Means, A Hip Pocket Guide. The Hip Pocket Constitution is available at justicetalking.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. After nine years and more than 300 shows, Justice Talking is going off the air this summer. We've covered some of the major constitutional battles of the past decade, as well as wrestled with issues like national security, free speech, and health care. We hope you'll share with us some of your favorite Justice Talking programs. Did you have any of those driveway moments when you were listening to our show? We hope you'll share your memories with us. You can email us at jtinfo at justicetalking.org. This is Justice Talking, where we make the connection between law, justice, and American life. I'm Margo Adler. Today's show about the free speech rights of military personnel was recorded in August 2007. The current Iraq war has been dubbed the first online war. Not only have reporters embedded with troops, but infantrymen themselves have taken advantage of Internet access and digital cameras to provide an unprecedented first-hand look at the war. Soldier blogs or online diaries, have skyrocketed in popularity, but they have also raised important questions about security and the potential for sensitive information to leak onto the net. Former Army Major Matthew Burden joins me to discuss changes in how the military regulates soldier blogs. He's been following the story on his own blog, Black Five. Well, the original regulation, and basically these are the the guidelines the Army follows, the original regulation for operational security stated that if you had a blog or a website, you needed to have that blog registered with your chain of command and that the first kernel, which is pretty high up there, but the first kernel in your chain of command had to review your content about every three months uh, for operational security information. And this is information you don't want to give the enemy. Um, You don't want to give away battle damage assessment from a bomb attack to let them know how effective or ineffective they've been. And so this is very important. Uh, Most soldiers get this. They don't want their actions to be the cause of more problems. And so uh, that was the original guidance and the guidance changed and the guidance stated that every piece of electronic communication, including email, needed to be monitored by the chain of command uh, that needed prior approval by the chain of command. And this created basically uh, an untenable position for commanders because there's no way they could – they, they don't have the time, do right? They don't right. have the time well, to do this. Nobody would, would have enough time. Right. And, and I would assume that it, particularly if you're in the military and you're busy and you're involved in stuff, this is not your priority. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these blogs are diaries. And um, I wouldn't want to go to my commander and say, you know, hey, sir, um, I want to tell my mom about a particularly hot day I had last week. Uh, can I do that? I've also heard some reporters say that the new regulations could be the end of soldiers' blogs. Do you agree? I have uh, at the end of the Blog of War, which is a book that I put together of, of soldiers' blogs, I predict that it's the beginning of the end of combat blogging. Now, there's a difference between military blogging uh, and combat blogging. And combat blogging is uh, when they, they actually describe what it's like to be in a firefight. Uh, Colby Bazell had a great uh, blog that turned into a book called uh, uh, My War, Killing Time in Iraq. There was a lot of that back then. 
these regulations basically have squelched the combat blogging because it gives away methods of movement, um, how we enter buildings in Iraq, those kind of things. It hasn't killed off the blogs. In fact, blogs have grown, but they're definitely a lot more muted than they used to be. The Department of Defense has also blocked certain websites, particularly content-sharing websites like YouTube or MySpace, where soldiers can go and post pictures or video. But as I understand it, soldiers can still visit these sites, just not from military computers. So are, are these new restrictions making any significant changes? Well, not really. And, and part of this was um, there's, you know, sort of a media reaction to the, to the banning of the sites. And it's like a work environment where, where I work at my corporation. We ban certain sites because you're supposed to be doing work instead of looking at YouTube. The military actually has its own YouTube channel, correct? Yes. The uh, Multinational Force Iraq or General Petraeus has his own YouTube channel. That's correct. And, and they post videos from the front lines that are shot by public affairs officials. Um, let's actually listen to one example. This video shot in Baghdad of U.S. soldiers engaging insurgents. <laughs> They're running between there and that blue door. See, there they go. By posting their own videos, isn't the military acknowledging that reports and videos from the front lines can be pretty powerful public relations tools? Well, that's the difference between General Petraeus um, and, and his predecessors is that I think he understands that – the Web 2.0, user-generated content, you know, internet tools, digital tools are very valuable in getting the word out about the good work that the military is doing. Let's talk about your own blog. It's called Black5.net. Tell me about why you started the blog and how it's evolved over the years. Well, I'm pretty much a news junkie and pay attention to a lot of the news sources, read newspapers, things like that. And I've been paying attention to blogs as well in 2003. Unfortunately, a very good friend of mine named Major Matthew Schramm from Brookfield, Wisconsin, um, was killed in an ambush on Memorial Day of 2003. And as he was fighting his way out of, his am- out of this ambush, he saved a convoy and um, he died. He was the only one who paid the price and found out at his funeral later on that there had been a reporter from a mainstream uh, news magazine along on his convoy. And uh, the reporter had decided not to write a story about my friend and um, that angered me quite a bit. So I decided to do something about it and um, just started blogging and telling the stories that I was getting from the field that was contradicting what I was reading in the newspapers or seeing on cable news. And basically, I left the military in 2001 and I had a few hundred friends in the combat zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they were sending me emails constantly that were contradicting what I was reading. And so it would, that's what I started doing was publishing those reports and that's why um, the popularity of the blog, it took off pretty quickly. You've also put together a book called The Blog of War. It's a collection of blog entries by a variety of soldiers and military personnel. Could you share a couple of passages with us? Sure. Um, One of my favorite chapters uh, of the book is called The Healers, and it's about doctors and nurses and medics, as you'd think. think. And it's also about chaplains who don't get enough credit in the military. And um, the last piece is about a guy who's actually a grunt. He's an infantryman. Uh, named Nick Katamartori, and uh, he's in Iraq, and he's been trained as a combat lifesaver. I ride the gun because I want some time to think. I ride the gun so no one can look directly at me if I break. I ride the gun so if the opportunity presents itself, if there is a call, then I can cause the absolute maximum damage possible. I want to cleanse myself in fire. 
and yet the opportunity doesn't come. I want to make someone pay because that kid was 20 with a girlfriend younger than him. Because for all I know, he may never see again. Because I had to be there. Because I can see so many things that I should have done differently. Because his hand was holding mine, and that tears me apart. Because there's so much on me. Finally, I'm back in my little cell. I am safe, relatively. My command from highest to lowest is telling me, good job, and talking about an award for me. And all I can think of is that I f***ed up somewhere and that he is paying. I don't know how exactly, but I'm sure I did. I am not all right, but I'm not gone either. I'm still here. I'm not whole, but I'm not shattered. I want things simple where I can go out and fight, fight back against this. For most soldiers, there is no fighting for country, no fighting for money, no fighting for God. There's only fighting for each other because we're all in this together. When I was reading your book the other night, I noticed that a lot of the selections are very positive about the war. And I'm wondering whether you think this is a true across the board when it comes to soldiers' blogs uh, or whether that's, you know, sort of just your take and whether there are soldiers out there who are using their blogs as a means to protest or voice criticism and concerns. Well, and that, you know, that tends to be a criticism of, of editors and publishers, too, that have, have, have been around for a long time and have covered the military. This is an all-volunteer force. It's very well-educated. Most of the people are there because they want to be. Now, don't don't take this the wrong way, but soldiers complain about everything. And as a matter of fact, you know, when my soldiers weren't complaining, I would worry that something was wrong. You know, there is that aspect of it. On the, on the other side, the majority of these blogs are positive. And it's, it's just in, incredibly interesting to me that they are that way and 1,300 to 1,500 every year. Is there anything else that you want to add? I really believe that the best press coming out of this war has been from blogs and, of course, they don't get that much attention. So the last piece I think that we didn't touch on is from a historical point of view. You know, when when soldiers send letters home from Vietnam or World War II or or Korea, a lot of times we'll we'll find those letters after that soldier is passed on or or that soldier can take them and publish them. You find them in a shoebox. But soldiers that come back from the war zone often let their, their websites, let their domains expire, let those great, great written pieces just kind of burn into bits and bytes on the internet and then they're gone. And one of the reasons I wrote the blog of war, edited it and put it together was because I did not want to lose that piece of history that was out there. And in fact, a lot of these blogs are now gone. Matthew Burden is a former major in the U.S. Army Reserve. He writes the military blog www.black5.net. He's also edited a book called The Blog of War, Frontline Dispatches from Soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you so much for joining me on Justice Talking. Thank you very much. We've just heard about all kinds of new technology in the war zone, blogs and digital cameras, but a lot of the larger questions that were raised in today's show aren't unique to the 21st century or this particular conflict. A recent film, Sir, No Sir, looks at how some soldiers spoke out during the Vietnam War. There were demonstrations and underground GI newspapers. David Zeiger, the writer and director of the film, joins me now. Welcome to Justice Talking. Thank you very much for having me. Many soldiers were involved in protesting the war in Vietnam. You call it a GI movement. How many people are we talking about? I'm, I'm not saying 100, 000, hundreds of thousands of people uh, organized or demonstrated, but, but tens of thousands of soldiers, active duty soldiers, did in fact 
demonstrate against the war, uh, helped put out underground newspapers, did a number of things that were in opposition to the war and opposition to racism and, and all of those things, and identified with the anti-war movement rather than with the military. One of the ways the soldiers were organizing was through underground newspapers. Um, you even have a clip of Walter Cronkite talking about it on the news. Uh, let's hear it. Phenomenon has cropped up at several army bases these days, a so-called underground GI press, which consists largely of anti-war newspapers. Military authorities are clamping down hard on the papers. Tell me how these papers functioned, how they started, who was producing them, who was reading them. The first underground newspaper that, that was started was started by a, um, a Vietnam vet, a guy named uh, Jeff Charlotte, who came back, went to college, and he put out a paper called Vietnam GI. He had students helped him publish it, and he developed a list of about 5,000 uh, people, uh, soldiers in Vietnam that the, the newspaper was sent to, and it was spread all over the country from that. And off of that, people started putting out their own newspapers, sometimes it would be two or three individuals who would get together and say, "We got to, you know, we got to talk about harassment on this base. We got to talk about the war, et cetera, et cetera." They would uh, secretly put it together, uh, mimeograph it, and hand it out um, secretly as well, because handing out unauthorized material on on a military base is a court-martial offense. And then there were also networks of of supporters, civilians, and veterans who supported these newspapers and helped publish them at bases around the country. I myself worked at. Uh, a place called the Oleo Strut, which was a, a part of a network of coffee houses where GIs would get together and, and organize against the war. And how many newspapers were there, different newspapers? Well, the people who have, have documented this, one of the, one of the my, my research associate uh, had done a, his Ph.D. thesis on GI underground press, and he counted, I think, 260 papers that were published and, and uh, at, at one point or another. Uh, inside the military, underground papers. And what was the military's response to to the underground newspapers? Well, their response was to do everything they could, they could to stomp it out. Uh, they there were many cases of people who had started papers uh, initially early in the early days of the GI movement, starting in about 1967 and up until 70 71. People were being court-martialed for for handing out papers on the base. Often they would be, you know, picked up on some other charge uh, and and uh, court-martialed. Or one of the things that the military did, which was somewhat comical, is that they would transfer people to other bases. So uh, underground newspapers started on all those bases. And, Got it. Uh, uh-huh. In the early 70s, the military basically decided that, that they simply had to get rid of the problem, and they discharged people in, in mass. The, not only did the, the military stop sending new troop, combat troops to Vietnam in 1971, but uh, uh, troops that came home after one tour, even though they may have had from anywhere from six months to 18 months still left in the military, were simply let out. You mentioned uh, working at the coffee house, uh, Oliot Strutt, um, and it's featured in your film. Uh, tell me about the atmosphere of that coffee house, of many coffee houses. How many, again, were there? There were, uh, at one point, there were, I think, as many as 30, I think 32. Uh, these places ranged from actual coffee houses, which is what the Oleo Strut was at, at, in Killeen, which were kind of meant to be havens for uh, soldiers to, to be able to come and talk about their feelings, talk about their experiences. Uh, a lot of them were, were legal centers. We had a legal counseling office. They be, they They became really the hub of the counterculture and and opposition uh, to the Vietnam War 
inside the military in, in, in a lot of bases. And they also faced a lot of repression. They, a lot of the places were closed down by local governments. The local government in Killeen tried several times to close down the Oleo Strut. An issue that's coming up today is the whole question of military personnel wearing their uniforms while speaking out against the war in Iraq. In your film, you interview a naval nurse, Susan Schnall. Here she reflects on her decision to wear her uniform. My opinion was fairly straightforward. It was if Westmoreland would wear his uniform, being for the war and talking in front of Congress, then as an active duty person, I certainly had the same rights that he did, and I could wear my uniform protesting the United States' involvement in Vietnam. She was court-martialed. Um, how was the military responding to this issue of protesting in uniform, and, and was this a major concern? Most GIs, when they were off base, the, la the last thing they wanted to do was wear their uniform. So, at least in my experience, that wasn't so much a, a matter of principle. I think for Su for Susan, it was very significant because I, I think the idea and the law that you cannot voice opposition to the war while in uniform uh, was scurrilous to her and to a lot of people because exactly as she says in the clip that that uh, you know Westmoreland you know would give speeches supporting the war you know in uniform and certainly that was acceptable uh, and I think it it symbolized for many people the idea that uh, somehow as a soldier it is your duty to support the war whether that war is legal or not or whether it's right or not and that was what was being really contested in a very sharp way by lots and lots of soldiers. David Zeiger is the writer and director for the film Sir, No Sir. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the chance. To learn more about the First Amendment rights of soldiers or for links to David Zeiger's movie and Matthew Burden's blog, go to our website, justicetalking.org. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'm Margo Adler. Justice Talking is produced by Ingrid Lakey, Cara McGurk, and Viet Le. Gary Gaiman is our webmaster. Annie Jurgens-Bear coordinates outreach. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. Engineering by Audio Post Philadelphia. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania or NPR. This is NPR's Justice Talking. Support for NPR comes from the Annenberg Foundation, advancing public well-being through improved communication, on the web at annenbergfoundation.org. From Kaufman, the foundation of entrepreneurship, celebrating entrepreneurs who start businesses and change the world, on the web at kaufman.org. And from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, making grants to solve social and environmental problems at home and around the world, on the web at hewlett.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.